welcome to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. Listen in as co-hosts Ted Stank and Tom Goldsby take a leap onto the ships of supply chain, crowd surf into the long lines of meeting holiday demand, and wade into the depths of warehouse inventory buildup. They'll cover all the relevant and current topics blocking the canal of your minds and discuss industry issues that keep you up at night. If you enjoy the show, download and subscribe to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management, wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, let's begin our show, where you'll hear what you'd least expect from the people you want to hear it from the most. Our co-hosts, Ted and Tom. Hello and welcome to another edition of Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. I'm your co-host, Tom Goldsby, joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ted Stank. Hello, Ted. Hey, Tom. Hi, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. You know, it's moment by moment, it seems. There's just so much going on, and uh, every now and then you just got to stop and and take a pulse. So why don't we try to jump right in with today's podcast. As our frequent listeners know, Ted and I will hash over news from within the world of supply chain management as well as beyond. And we're delighted to have an industry guest with us today. So uh, why don't we go ahead and just jump in and talk about what's been going on. It's been a, a pretty hectic time since our last podcast, a lot going on out there. Chinese spy balloons, as well as maybe some middle school science projects that have gone awry, perhaps. So you got to make sure you file a a flight plan, I think, with DOD before you you launch something these days. So that's certainly been a a point of contention, uh, rising international tensions out there. And of course, we mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, a somber occasion, uh, but a time of, of kind of reflection and maybe recalibration of what's going on there. And also, President Biden had his State of the Union address last month and an awful lot of supply chain. I don't know if those folks out there might have had a drinking game around, you know, how many times supply chain was mentioned, but you'd be pretty lit, I'd say, by the end of that 90 minutes or so in which Biden was in the congressional chamber there. But a lot going on uh, involving supply chains near and far, and a lot more data perhaps for us to sink our teeth into within the world of business. I know jobs reports and a whole host of things. Ted, what's been getting your uh, time and attention? What have you been trying to get grasp of as it relates to the world, economics, and supply chains? Well, start off with where you started. It was interesting for me that the Air Force's I think like billion dollar platforms, the F-22 finally got to fire a shot in anger and shoot down a Chinese spy balloon, as well as some of those um, middle school science projects. And I think they missed one. So that's probably not a good thing. I'm saying this again as a Navy veteran. So who has, right, who has right. a son who's an Air Force veteran? So well, isn't that a joint fighter or does that go across or is that uh, solely with the Air Force? That's Air Force. Oh, F- okay. F-35 is the Oh, the 35. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So that was interesting to me. Um, we have a place here on the coast of North Carolina, and it got shot down just down the coast in South Carolina. Evidently, it passed by not too far from us. So yeah, I mean, it was a it was an interesting anecdote. But I think, like you said, it just points to the rising tensions in the relations between the U.S. and China, which certainly has a lot of supply chain implications. I know, Tom, you're working on a research project related to uh, ally shoring and reshoring of uh, a lot of manufacturing to places that are not China and (laughs) might be more friendly to us in the event that these tensions boil over. So really interesting. 
All the stuff with NATO, I just read that many of the Western defense suppliers are tapped out and countries like South Korea are starting to jump in the fray in terms of providing Ukraine with military hardware. So just a lot of interesting things going on there. Within the world of supply chain, what's been grabbing your attention lately? You mentioned the CHIPS Act and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. I think that's driving a lot of conversation and a lot of um, change in, in manufacturing environments as well. I don't think anybody really knows yet exactly how it's going to shake out, but there's a lot of investment certainly going in the United States and Mexico. This is the first time I think a U.S. president has attempted some really serious industrial policy in decades, so it remains to be seen how it's going to work out. All kinds of interest in economic reports. You and I, for several months now, have said, yeah, we're really not sure where we're going. And I think it's still true. We're really not sure where we're going. There's all kinds of interesting and conflicting data out there economically. Jobless claims fell. Inflation fell by a little bit. Consumer confidence is awful, but Purchasing Managers Institute tech is tracking up, particularly in services, and it's even up in manufacturing. It's not above 50, but it's up from what it was in January. So there's just a lot of interesting things going on. You know, I'm not an economist, and I have stated a Holiday Inn Express. You have to say that if you really don't know what you're talking about. But I, I think that we might find by springtime that we've kind of been in a recession and start coming out of it. Yeah, you know, we get these reads, and I think a, a lot more government reports are going to be coming out this week with regard to last month's jobless rate and productivity measures and so forth. It, it almost depends on what picture you want to see, frankly. It seems like you can find evidence for upside or downside, depending upon the numbers that you choose to reference and, and the framing of those numbers. In fact, you know that I tend to pay a lot of attention to consumers. And as you point out, consumer sentiment has been blah for a long time. Outlook as well is, is pretty dismal, but they're still spending. You saw the retail numbers, a huge month in January. We thought that there'd be a lot of inventory out there for consumers to pick over, probably some very good deals given excess inventory, that bullwhip effect that we talk about all the time. And, and so it seems like consumers enjoyed a lot of spending, not just in, in services and travel and all that stuff, but also on goods. And it seems like retail reports are, are beating expectations so again, it really just kind of depends on which data points you want to call out and how you want to interpret them, because it is open to interpretation. There does seem to be some adjustments that happen. I think like the, the December jobs number got downgraded a little bit. And so, you know, after you allow a little more time. Also, we're seeing, I think, that private sector job placement numbers are down, whereas government reporting on job openings is, is still really robust. So again, really depends on which uh, data points you make reference to. I would highlight to our listeners the danger of assuming you understand what all these reports are telling you, you bring up the jobs information. It looks really good, but as you start parsing it out, it showed that much of that hiring was done by the government and not by mm. private industry. So, you know, our good friend, Marianne Wanamaker, she needs to be the one that tells us what's going on instead of you and I reading these tea leaves because we might read them wrong. But I do think the big message is there's just a big muddle of gray and we're not really sure what it's telling us. Just to pick up on retail, a lot of last mile 
retailers are pretty bullish on the future. Some news came out that the likes of Target, Sam's Club are building out more e-commerce warehouses yep. uh, and trying to, to reinforce an already pretty robust footprint. Target is interesting in that about 95% of their e-commerce is fulfilled from store. So it's kind of interesting to see if they're building out more industrial capacity to see if they're going to try to expand the product portfolio that might be available at Target.com. Of course, Sam's part of the Walmart family and still looking to get that that same day delivery and next day delivery, even to some extra urban, if you will, uh, areas outside the cities. So impressive to see them trying to continue to build out the reach. Yeah, you know, and you, that you bring up a really good point, Tom, that Target, Sam's Club, I think is another one that announced their building warehouse space, right? Mm-hmm. Despite all the swirling controversy about what's happening with the economy, warehouse space is still at a premium, still very, very low empty rates and very high utilization rates. In the office space uh, environment, some interesting statistics came out. Our friends at Colliers International provide us with some updates of key areas. The Chicagoland area in particular has hit a uh, kind of a steady state of 40% occupancy rate in downtown offices, which I think we'll talk about a bit later on when we start talking about talent and talent development and retention, things like that, because that's directly related to where people are working. Um, Some other things going on supply chain wise, we're seeing freight rates a steady decline as capacity is uh, greater than demand in all modes of transportation. Interesting in oil and and gas vertical that U.S. exports are at an all-time high of petroleum products as we have become the the go-to provider of petroleum products, particularly natural gas for Europe this winter because of the Russia-Ukraine scenario. So just a lot of really interesting things going on there. One thing I will bring up and take get your take on it as a former Ohioan is the Norfolk Southern derailment issue. That's pretty concerning. Comes on the heels of, you know, of, of, of avoiding the strike. And some people are starting to say that um, maybe the railroads have taken this notion of precision railroading too far and it's causing them to cut corners on safety. We already heard about during the potential strike that railroaders were saying they didn't have time to even go to the doctor. And, you know, a lot of issues like that, that they're running so lean, if you will, that um, they don't have a lot of slack to do things that that might protect the public. Your your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's, that's an area of, uh, of a lot of interest, obviously, right now. And uh, so much focus in, in recent weeks on East Palestine with the, the chemical spill. And then, of course, over the weekend, Norfolk Southern had another derailment uh, not far away from East Palestine in eastern Ohio. And so people's alarms are, are going off toward this. And it's understandable. And, and I'll tell you what, uh, if I was a resident of that area, I'd, I'd certainly be very concerned for me and my family, given those circumstances. The thing, though, I have to point out is rail, again, no peace for those who are affected directly. But rail is a pretty safe mode of transportation if you consider the volumes that we move. Up until just a few years ago, rail outpaced trucking in terms of ton miles, meaning that we move tremendous volumes over very long distances by rail. And in fact, we have about a thousand derailments a year in this country. I think in uh, last year, it was a little over a thousand, 1,041 was the number. Now, 
Very few of them made national news because they didn't involve chemicals, necessarily hazardous materials, and and the volume that we see in East Palestine. So that's that's it's obviously there's there's room for a lot of improvement. But something I, I feel is important to point out: imagine if we had all that volume flowing on the highways and byways in one thirty thousand gallon tanker car for the rail. Yeah, you know, that's about five trucks equivalent. So if we had five times more trucks moving chemicals than we do, and the accident rate is much higher, obviously, uh, it's an infrastructure that we all share. And so I would love to see, this is this sounds a little bit inflammatory right now, but I, I would love to see more volume move by rail. It just needs to do it safely. I think a new person to the rail industry, Warren Buffett, uh, we heard him speak <laughs> some years ago, Berkshire Hathaway acquired Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, one of the big class one railroads since probably about eight years, 10 years ago now, maybe longer than that. He said that the 21st century could be the century of the railroads again. And and I really think he's got a, a lot to be bullish about as it involves much more sustainable, much more fuel efficient and statistically speaking, safer. Now, yeah. it could be safer still. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. And I think it shows how it's so important for supply chain professionals to have their voices heard as governments try to set policy, because you could see that there would be knee jerk reactions to this with unintended consequences, like putting five trucks on the highway for every one rail tank car that we remove. That's probably not anything that anybody wants. So yeah, you know, you need to proceed with caution. Great point. You mentioned the the intermodal revolution that we've seen in the last several decades, right? Well, as soon as fuel gets anywhere close to $5 a gallon, people start thinking, hey, is there any chance I could divert this stuff to, to rail? And it was fascinating, you know, in recent years to see trucking companies who don't have enough drivers and at various points in time haven't had enough equipment saying, hey, we're we're willing to sell intermodal truck rail truck service for nationwide coverage. And so it's been a pretty fascinating. You and I wrote a piece more than 20 years ago talking about the blurring of the modes, how yeah. it wasn't just trucks competing against other trucks, but you bring in rail, yeah. trucks competing against airplanes, right? This notion of competition across the modes. And it seems like we really are fulfilling that these days. Yeah. Well, hey, let's shift gears a little bit here. I mentioned a, a bit about the uh, office occupancy rate. I happen to have a couple of offspring who are, I guess we could call them knowledge workers, and for much of the last three years have not spent a lot of time in an office. And just over the last couple of months, uh, my oldest son went from zero times a week having to go into the office to two times a week, and his company just announced that they want them in three times a week now. I have another son down in Atlanta. He was not having to go into the office at all. And he was just told he needs to come in, I believe, starting in mid-March, two times a week. So, I mean, we're starting to see more of that. We're starting to see leadership at companies be a little bit more forceful of a hybrid model. A lot of conversation around, uh, again, what are the pros and cons of these different kinds of models? One little piece of the talent puzzle, but increasingly, particularly with Gen Z and millennials, that's becoming a, a bigger issue, these lifestyle issues. Because you and I interact with a lot of these people while they're students and before they go out to work, we always hear a lot about this. It's certainly top of mind for those students. But I think it's really important that we bring in somebody who's in a leadership position and has worked with these folks a lot. So I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Wendy Gentry-Stunkel, who is uh, Vice President of Procurement 
for Caterpillar. Wendy has been a good friend of our program for a number of years. She sits on our executive advisory board. She's presented uh, several times at our supply chain forum. And another thing Wendy and I have in common, I have a son who's a graduate of the supply chain program at University of Tennessee. Wendy has a son who's about to graduate. Happy to report he has a great job with another one of our partners, Pepsi, down in Dallas. So Wendy, welcome. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Excited to be here with you. It's great to have you. We wanted to bring you in to get your thoughts on what it's like to lead today when you have a lot of generational change. Labor and talent is at a premium, and so leaders have to really be attentive to the way they lead. I remember this is 10 years ago now. I ended up replacing a coach of a lacrosse team because that coach had the belief from when I was a kid that coaches were authority figures and what the coach says went and people had to obey it because you said it. And we essentially had a revolt amongst our, at that point, millennial high school kids on the team because they wanted to know why we had to do certain things and they questioned it. And he had almost a breakdown and because no one had ever challenged him on that before. So there's lots of interesting things going on in the talent world. And of course, for any leader, we've got to keep that talent. We've got to develop that talent. Can you talk a little bit about what your leadership style has been and how it's changed as we've gone through the years with different generations? Yeah, I don't know if it's the generations changing or maybe it's just me hopefully getting a little <laughs> bit wiser on things. Because even your example of the lacrosse coach, I think even earlier generations, they wondered why. They just weren't brave enough to say it. Right, right. The accepted way was not to challenge any kind of authority figure. Right. But aren't all of us better off if we understand the why? Absolutely. And so things have changed. And so they articulate it. Believe me, the you mentioned my son, Alex. We certainly have lots of conversations about all facets of life that I certainly never had with my <laughs> mother <laughs> um, from that generation. But ultimately, what you're talking about are relationships, right? And people actually having psychological safety. And are they willing to put that forward? Are they willing to ask that question? And I still think it comes down to the relationships that you have and being able to do it in an environment where those ideas can come to the table. It's fundamental to innovation, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can get the ideas on the table without fear of repercussion or that you're going to be embarrassed or anything like that. And that's what we have to do as leaders. I think as I've gotten more experienced, because I've been in industry now, this will be my 34th year, a long time. <laughs> and I think earlier in my career, I didn't talk so much about all the things I screwed up. In fact, you just wanted to, to fix it and move on and hope that nobody noticed. But I find in my leadership role now, sharing that with people openly and saying, I don't know, let's try it. And, you know, them saying, is it going to work? And sometimes I just look at them. I'm like, I don't know, but it's the best option on the table. Let's give it a shot. Knowing that I don't have all the answers either. That's in itself a, a marked difference from this coming of age, if you will, you know, the willingness to admit that you don't have all the answers. I mean, historically, you, you know, leaders, 
you know, were looked toward as if they did. And that was a, that was a, a fallacy. But, you know, I'm really intrigued with this notion of bringing diverse voices to the table and coaching up individuals and pursuing organizational goals. But it, it does strike me that it's difficult even for Ted and me to manage this in the classroom, you know, with different voices and to kind of rally at an organization that, as Ted points out, fans, generations. How do you kind of provide some kind of unifying influence around the organization, get people to rally toward a team cause and and leverage the strengths that the differences bring forward? People like to solve problems. And when you rally around a specific problem, you see those people come together more so than a philosophical concept. So I will tell you the best job I ever had in my career, I was in the automotive industry and I took the role of being responsible for our supply chain crisis management team in an environment where everything is just in time. There are plenty of fires and floods and rail delays and trucking accidents and snowstorms and things. It was the best job I ever had because you were truly at a point of crisis. And so you would see people come together across the supply base and different areas of the company. And you would see this amazing innovation because it was like, wow, anybody got any ideas on what we're going to do here? And we would try things because we all, I mean, everybody let down their barriers and it was like, doesn't matter, you know, whether it's good for my company or good for the customer. And ultimately there's going to be some money at stake, but we would just jump in and try to solve it together. And you would get these diverse perspectives and you would get everybody having a a seat at the table and throwing things out. And when people can see that and feel that, especially as they're coming into their career, it's really motivating because shockingly, most of the time it actually worked. I mean, we would try stuff and I don't know if it's going to work, but a shocking percentage of the time it actually did. And so when they can see that and get excited by that, that it's like, yeah, this really works. They know that they're doing meaningful work. We talk a lot about at Caterpillar about doing meaningful work which is kind of the opposite of when you think of old school bureaucracy and and people doing things and not knowing the why. But this is where they see those ideas come to fruition quickly and can get excited about them. And so those things unite any team, be it different departments, all the different sources of diversity, right? Stages in career, gender, race. At Caterpillar, right? I have people just in my team in 26 different countries. And so we solve a lot of global problems where there's so many other things that come into the table in terms of language and communication styles and how they view hierarchy. And so that's the fun part of the challenge is how do you really bring out from every team members that's sitting at that table? You know, Wendy, that brings to mind for me the early days of the COVID pandemic, April, May, June of 2020. I had the opportunity to sit in on a couple of war rooms for some of the companies that I work closely with. And to see that exactly the kind of situation that you talked about, where the world was just going up in flames and service providers, transportation providers, manufacturers, 3PLs from all over the globe 
were all coming up with innovative ways to get product delivered. This tended to be in the um, pharmaceutical industry uh, to try to get product into countries that the old way of doing it had broken down because of COVID. And it was really, it was really energizing to see. Yeah. I remember having discussions in Europe. I was leading our logistics department and countries would make announcements about closing their borders. And so we would sit and, well, what does that mean? And eventually it was like, well, send in a truck and see what happens. <laughs> because you you really didn't know. Sometimes they weren't clear. Sometimes the instructions that they were giving to border control weren't necessarily clear. And the only way we knew it was like, well, send in a truck. And I guess if we have to just cross the goods at the border and, and do a drop and hook or something, we'll do that. But that was how we went through the problem solving because there weren't always clear answers coming through. But Again, the beauty of COVID, because there are always blessings from everything. Wendy, I am just so curious. Again, you've seen so much in those 34 years, so many experiences. And and Alex has had an opportunity to have a front row seat throughout much of that. And as pointed out, he's going to be a soon-to-be volunteer graduate uh, out of our program. Uh, Ted, you don't have Alex in class right now, do you? I mean, you're not going to fail him or anything. Okay. No, okay. no. Good. I okay. Do not. So, so good chance that Alex is actually going to graduate here in a few months. But I'm just curious uh, about what words of wisdom you have imparted to him, if you'd be willing to share with the audience. Uh, and, and clearly, he has the gumption to follow your footsteps into the world of supply chain. But I'm just curious about the nature of the back and forth that you and he have and and what advice you've lent him. Advice that I give everybody in starting their career is you need to go into the operations of what your company does. Certainly that can be a little different in some service industries, but I've always worked for companies that did manufacturing, manufacturing or distribution. And so my push is you need to understand how the revenue is really generated get in there and see about the movement of goods, the real production that delivers value to a customer. Often I talk to people who, you know, I'm sitting with a a recent graduate, either from undergrad or graduate school, and they tell me they want to go into, say, strategy. And I try to withhold my laughter because I'm thinking, who is going to listen to you about strategy? You don't have any experience yet. I really turn it around with them and I'm like, you know, I understand that you want to go into strategy and that's a great objective. There's great careers there, but the lower level positions, you're just going to be doing some spreadsheet jockeying or nowadays doing BI tools. You probably aren't going to make a lot of decisions because strategic decisions get made by people with more experience. That's totally different in operations. When you were in operations, you learn decision-making from day one and you learn the consequences of not making a decision. And that's probably the important lesson that I learned early in my career working in automotive at the time for General Motors was this line is running and I have to decide right now, can we use this part or can we not use this part? I don't get to go pull in a committee and go study it for months. You need to decide right here and now. And again, either way, there's consequences. And sometimes I think people fail to learn early in their career that lack of a decision is a decision. And that ends up impeding their career in the future. Wow, great advice. And I love the notion of getting close to the action. 
and understanding the nature of how value is created in the business up close and personal. So that that's fantastic. And I think that resonates with us here at UT. But yeah, there is that notion of I have becoming a college graduate and going to work in a headquarters and if you are going to report in person, yeah, uh, stocking up on a wardrobe and collecting paychecks. But meanwhile, getting that experience up close to, to where the work is done, particularly while you're young and getting attuned to how values create, I think it's just fantastic. I'm trying to, you know, kind of think underneath Wendy's comments. And what it strikes me is that you really, as a leader, need to develop a whole lot of trust in your folks that you have their best interests at heart. We're going through a little bit of a transition here with some of our folks who have really contributed a lot over over the last many years. And people have asked me how I feel about that. And I said, you know, we want people to reach their potential and do great things. And if it means that they've got to move somewhere else to continue to achieve their aspirations, then we've done our job. And if we develop a reputation for that, we're going to be able to bring in other great people to do that for themselves. And and I think it's that trust issue. How does that rub you, Wendy? Oh, I think it's all about trust. When I think about concepts of psychological safety, it is about trust and people knowing, people that I lead, I got your back. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to push you and challenge you because I care about you greatly and I want you to reach your potential. I mean, it's almost, for me, it's kind of similar to a maternal tendency, but I want to see that in them. And at times where I see them stopping short of that or not doing what I think they can do, I'm pushing them. But the way that that works is because they know that it's like, I only want good for you. I want amazing things in your life that I think you're capable of. and. When they know that at any age or stage in their career, you've kind of got them for life. I would say one of the things I'm so proud of is the number of people that I stay in touch with and still mentor that I haven't worked with in 10, 15 years. But we have that relationship and it just makes me really happy and proud. That speaks a whole lot to what you've been able to do as a leader, Wendy. So we are always incredibly thankful to have you as part of our, you mentioned family, okay, as part of our broader family. I do think that's kind of the atmosphere we try to create in our programs. And to have folks like you working with us and kind of showing us the way is a wonderful treat for us. Well, I love working with you guys as well. It's an important balance in my life that It's very easily to get sucked into the day-to-day, and you guys keep me grounded in the research that's out there, really benchmarking what other companies are doing, because I can learn from all of them. They're not my competitors, but working for Caterpillar, I learned as I interface with my GSCI brethren, and we're talking about Kimberly Clark or (laughs) Procter & Gamble, or certainly when, when I work with FedEx. And so all of those things are important reflections to keep me thinking. I need that intellectual growth as well. And you guys are a great resource for that. Well, thank thank you, you, Wendy. And also thank you for entrusting Alex to Mm -hmm. us these last four years. He's been a great student, a wonderful contributor, participated in some of that research that you mentioned. And uh, he's been a real delight. And we look forward to sending him out in the world just as you are. And we're going to be very proud of, of what he accomplishes out there. Thank you very much. Thanks for your kind words.
What do you think, Ted? It's about time to wrap up this episode. Yeah, let's bring this home. Hey, you know, um, when you were talking about how you still need to be able to think, this weekend was the 30th anniversary of the famous Jim Valvano speech mm. um, that he made at the ESPY Awards when he was uh, in late stages of cancer shortly before he passed away. And what brings to mind is he was th- that famous quote that you hear all over the place about what is a good day. A good day is a day where you laugh, you think, and something moves you to tears. That's a good day. So I so, think that's a good way for us to end. There you go. A little checklist for all of us day to day. Well, fantastic. Well, again, Wendy, thank you so much for not only uh, joining us today, but what you bring to our program and contribute routinely in our mission here at Global Supply Chain Institute at the University of Tennessee. For those of you that would like to reach out to us, love to hear from you. We certainly heard a lot of response to our last podcast featuring some stellar students, and we love to hear that feedback. So please send it to us at gsci at utk.edu. And with that, we will sign off for this edition. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe via your favorite listening platform, such as iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Leave a reply in our show notes at gscipodcast.com or email your questions to gsci at utk.edu. Join us next time in our pursuit to prove that supply chain management is more fun than you think.